You're listening to The Originators, a 2FM collective podcast. Hi, I'm Rick O'Shea and welcome to the first episode of RTE2FM's podcast series, Originators. Throughout the series, I'll be talking to Irish under 35s from sometimes wildly varying fields who found success and finding out how it happened and who they really are. This first episode takes place in the Cobalt Cafe on North Great Georgia Street in Dublin, in the middle of their cleaning up, actually, where I got to talk to somebody who I'd wanted to interview for a long time. Steph Preisner is a screenwriter, playwright and actor. Her six-part comedy drama series Can't Cope, Won't Cope was a rating success in 2016 for RTE. Uh, it's been taken up by BBC Three and now she's currently writing season two. Steph, hi. Hi. We're I like that you call me Steph, by the way. Isn't that what everybody... Well, I mean, I've always seen you refer to as that online. Because, again, we're in a situation, as with many other people in this series, where we've never really met, met, but we know each other on the internet. We know each other on the internet, and I've been aware of you since, like, forever. So in 2001, I was 13. I was... This summer of 2001, I was a competitive swimmer, and I used to hang around my swimming friends in the pool, and... There, I, I can like I can distinctly remember all of the music that was around at that time and some of my friends were really big into radio mm-hmm. and we had these things that were called swim p3 players and they were like they'd just come from America that's nice they were mp3 players that you could wear in the pool okay and uh, famous for 15 seconds was big that summer and it was basically a voicemail it was basically a, a voicemail account that you had that your show left on for the week and you would leave voicemails on it and then your you or your team would pick a few of them and play them and they were 15 second voicemails and I spent so much of my pocket money on phone credit ringing your benighted voicemail making up voices doing prank calls trying to get famous for 15 seconds I was famous for 15 seconds three times and I was like I was like Niall Horan around Mallow Town like people were like I heard you on famous 15 seconds and I was like oh yeah uh, do you remember anything you did in any of those three things that got you on the radio um I remember at the time also being aware of the rubber bandits when they were just starting out and they used to make prank phone calls and so I was kind of inspired by this and I used to make prank phone calls and like do funny voices and we used to ring up and be like this is Ricochet would you like to buy a wheelie warmer for your loved one (laughs) we just thought we were 13 like we thought it was just so funny and the feeling of fame when you played those 15 second clips, I was like, oh my God, I did it. I did it. So, you know, did that give you a taste for the big time then? Oh yeah, you, it's all down to you. I was famous for 45 seconds and I just have been chasing that dragon ever since. Like, gotta get famous for another 15 seconds. Tell me uh, about, because some people may have seen you uh, on, on stage and some people may have seen stuff that you've, you've written. The vast majority of people will know because of, of Can't Cope, Won't Cope. Like the BBC have just, pick that up is that weird is that strange it's it's strange because it's see it's it's one of these things that sounds far more gla- like it is great but the reality of it is that i know just as much as you know because i've read the press release i haven't met the bbc <laughs> they haven't contacted there weren't me meetings you weren't wined <laughs> dined there was no i was not wined and dined okay. um you must have signed something surely i haven't signed anything because i would have signed it with the production company that made can't cope won't cope and then they distribute it i sign my life away and then they sell it to whoever they want they could have sold it to ikea um but they but so 
when my nana found out about BBC Three, she was like, and is that brilliant for you? I was like, well, actually, it doesn't really, you know, it's really good to bring it to a wider audience, but I'm, it doesn't actually have that much of an immediate implication for me. And she paused for a while and she was like, well, I suppose it's good for your CV. <laughs> I was like, yes, it's great for my CV that I have a television show that's been bought by the BBC Three. Can you do that? Once optioned by the BBC, <laughs> does that go in a CV? Yeah. It's kind of like as seen on The Late Late Show. So before you become... Uh, a, a writer and before all this what else is on your CV before you get to that point um, before I mean now my CV is, is is kind of more truthful because it has to be um, and you can you know find things out but before you know like my hobbies and interests would have been like horse riding and reading and once I had an interview with someone where they were like it says in your CV you like reading tell me the last book you read I was like oh god <laughs> Like I read Peter Pan when I was seven all by myself. Um, so yeah, no other things that are on my CV. Um, Salvadin is my boyfriend, and before that, um, I toured. So I started off as an actor. After, so I wanted to be the first female Garda commissioner. Right, that was my dream. Tough job. Um, and Bit I late went, for that now. Yes, I can never do that now. I went to Templemore for two weeks and uh, started to learn how to be a guard and did work experience and learned like the guard alphabet and how to fill out a report and had my Gaelga classes and uh, was in with the phase one guards on my work experience. And then I got a job as an actor. I got called from Cork to come and play a role in Enda Walsh's new play. And so I left my work experience to go and do that. And I said I would go back to the guards Um after that, when the acting and the writing stopped, and that still remains my sentence. So when this all stops, I'm heading back to Templemore. Can I ask, in a nerdy side question, is that why you gave yourself the role of a guard in an episode of Can't Cope, Won't Cope? Because I did see you. 100% Behind the why. desk. We filmed that episode on the night of my birthday. And it was also a Garda role and there was a Garda uniform. And I was like, this is a sign from like God or else I've just created it this way. But I'm definitely going to play Garda Prisoner. And then we called it Garda Prisoner forever. And then when it actually came to making the credits, the production team were like, you have to change the name. Like it can't be Garda Prisoner. So it changed to Garda Kiri, which is my mother's maiden name. And uh, yeah, I got to wear the uniform and I was so joyous I was walking around being like look at me look at me like I'm a guard I'm a guard and it was amazing would you describe yourself as happy this moment yes um, I think that happiness sometimes is a decision um, and sometimes I have to choose happiness it's easy for me to like not choose it and there have been times when, around when I was doing something as my boyfriend and after when I was really really not happy um, and I definitely am aware that like my mental health is a spectrum and sometimes I'm far away from the pinnacle of where I want to be on that spectrum. Um, right now I am, I am happy though. I'm not content to, you know, I'm not so happy that I am content to, to stay where I am. I think I'm very ambitious and in, and in some ways ambition can be the worst thing you can be struck down with, you know, um, because I think that my ambition has kind of pushed my happiness onto the horizon of of success. So it's, it's like something I can never actually 
I don't know if I'll ever actually be 100% happy, you know, because I'm like, I'll be happy when I have a series on television. And then I have a series on television and I'm like, okay, but now there are other options. Now there are people who have series on television and they've been, you know, bought by the BBC and other territories. I'll be happy when that happens. And then that happens and it's like, okay, but I'll be happy when it gets recommissioned. And then that happens. But then there's a film or there's something else. And, you know, uh, happiness is always on the horizon for me. And I don't know if I, you know, that's what horizons are. Like you never really can get there. So sometimes I have to be like, hang on, Stephanie, just stop for a second now and turn around and look at all of the things that you've achieved and look back at the lists you made of the things you wanted to achieve and 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 feel some fucking joy like you know and mm. um, because if you don't choose to do that it would be very easy to compare yourself like we live in a world where we constantly compare ourselves to other people because of social media i think mainly and um you know it's very easy to to not take those moments to choose to be happy conversations i've found from speaking to people for this series possibly because of what they do and possibly because of of the age of people i'm talking to they inevitably come around social media in one form or another is it a force for good in your life has it been a force for bad in your life is it something that you feel some days you just like to you know burn your bridges and walk away from or is it something essential um yeah no it's uh, so it's definitely at some point been like i think facebook is the worst thing that's ever been invented i'm not on it i don't do it anymore it nearly destroyed me it didn't have to try very hard i basically uploaded all of my joy onto it and had nothing left for myself like um but i felt that i was like constantly comparing myself to other people and couldn't even though like I'm intelligent and I know that people only put the best of themselves on Facebook and that everyone is uploading the highlights of their life and, you know, their best cappuccino designs. But like, and they don't upload the ones where the hearts on the cappuccino froth went a bit skew ways. But like, it's still like our, our my human brain wasn't able to always rationalize that. And I kept being like, why, why is my life so much so gray and other people's is just black and white, you know, like good and great and 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 so i did you not love the endless pictures of other people's brilliant holidays and all of those ones of their kids where you're going don't care don't care don't care don't care don't care like but i you i think it's like cognitive dissonance you kind of convince yourself that you do care and like since since that day that i deleted my facebook page i've never met someone who misses their facebook like who has shut it down and misses it but i have met at least four million people who say like, I, yeah, I know Facebook is terrible, but like I have to have it for my work. Like I actually can't have my job without Facebook. And it's like, you actually can, yeah. You just trying to tell yourself you can't. I manage just fine without Facebook. I'm working, I'm getting jobs. People, if people want to contact you and offer you a job, they'll find another way if you're not on Facebook. Like I remember putting up Facebook posts that I then deleted because enough people didn't like them. Like that's psychotic. What about the actual fame thing? Because obviously since since Can't Cope, Won't Cope has, has happened, you've been on The Late Late Show. Um, is is it strange? Do people, you know, go, oh, are you? Uh, did, does that yeah. weird you out? It does a bit, yeah, because I have... I disappeared off the face of the earth in 20... What is this, 2017? In 2015. I just, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not very social. I don't... I have a lot of social anxiety. I don't meet people. I don't really go to the theatre anymore. Basically, 
kind of set up a new rule in my life, which was that I don't do anything I don't want to do. And so if people text me and they want to meet for a coffee, I'll say no, unless I want to. And it's it's brilliant. Bec- like, it's quite confronting for people because they think I'm selfish. But it means that when I do something, it's because I want to do it. And so my interactions with people are full and enriched and joyous. And I know the meaning of true conversation. And, and I don't talk about the weather or what holidays they have planned. And and so the meetings that I do have with people are like real quality time, you know? And so... I'm all the more astonished you're here today then, frankly. Well, I'm telling you, you made me famous for 45 <laughs> seconds in Mallow. <laughs> but um, so I... So it's very strange when I don't have a Facebook and I my, my Instagram and my Twitter account are, are very curated in that I don't give out much about myself um, because I feel like while I am speaking about the generation that I'm in and, and I create work that is reflective of Irish society, I also retain the right to my personal privacy, you know, and I don't want to exploit my friends and my relatives by making myself famous by talking about them. Mm. And so it's very strange when people know stuff about you that you've put into the public domain and you don't know them. So they feel they know you, but you've no idea who they are. And when people talk to me off spec, like if I just bump into someone in the street and they recognize me, I I don't know what to say and I, I kind of start stuttering. Even now that I'm trying to explain it, I'm stuttering. I, 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 do, I find the world a difficult place to be in. Would you classify yourself, and I would, because um, I've read books about this before, as an introvert? You would classify me as an introvert? Or you I would, would classify, classify you? me definitely as an introvert. Would you classify yourself as an introvert? I would classify myself, uh, you see, I would say yes. And then a lot of people who see like my interview on the Late Late Show or any of those things would say like, no, you're not. You're like super, you know, conversational and relatable. And, and I am, but I think what happens is I have a little store of extroversion, right? I imagine myself like, like, a, like, a, like a slow puncture. And when I go out into the world, the slow puncture happens. And my personality, I have pent up personality, which is like my extroversion. And it gets sucked dry by, by just being out in the world and talking to people and, 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 and doing interviews or asking people about themselves or having my photo taken or whatever. And then I need to go home and like just be in my own little box with my two housemates and the people who don't need anything from me. And... It takes a couple of days to build me back up again until I'm a full tire and then and then I can go out. And so like that's fine. I'm I'm completely happy to reconcile the fact that it you know, it it costs me when I go and do my stuff, but the opportunity cost is greater than than the expense to me in some cases and then I will do it. Um but it definitely does I am spent after it sometimes. I think that's almost the textbook definition of what of what I'm talking about. I am gonna send you a copy of a book that I really liked that I read. And came out of going, yeah, me, absolutely. That, that's Susan Cain's book, Quiet, which is about introverts. And pretty much she talks about exactly what you've said. There are people who have this relatively limited store of energy. You've got a kind of game face that you use, but it takes a lot of, it expends a lot of energy in order for you to use that, that game face. And it does take it out of you. Yeah. I think it's difficult for people who used to know me because I used to be an extrovert. Or rather, I was an introvert who was insecure and so like insecurity can make you either be very very shy or very very loud and it made me very loud I've kind of felt like I had to like inject myself into every silence because otherwise I don't know what would happen you know and so I was kind of a superlative I was the loudest the happiest I had to be the funniest the person who all the chairs in the room were facing and so for people who used to know me then 
and they it's kind of confronting when when they come up to me and I and I don't know the words to answer their questions you know and I also feel like a lot of my friends are actors and a lot of my not my friends I, um, a lot of the people that I know are are actors and performers and people who work in that industry and I think that we live in a country we live in a society where art is not really appreciated and that leads to actors and artists feeling they're like hungry ghosts, you know, and they walk around and they need to be like fed and validated. And so when they meet you, they want to be validated. And, and sometimes I don't have the energy to do that when they're like, feed me, feed me, feed me. You know, I haven't had a good review in a couple of months. And how, you know, I, I know that you like me. And it's that until we live in a society that values the arts in a way that I think it should, then we're going to have these, these people who need that sort of validation. Tell me about the book. What's the book going to be about? Um, the book is called Why Can't Everything Just Stay the Same? And other things I shout when I can't cope. And I didn't know how to get that in a font. So um, that'll be up to the graphic designer if he can get that tone. Um, the book is um, personal essays uh, from me about uh, things that... Ch I hate change. I can't... I, I just don't like it. Um, which is funny because I've undergone massive change myself at, at my own choice but I don't um when I was a kid I used to uh really really struggle with change and I would be very very you know I'd be like ma'am what are we having for dinner on Thursday you know or uh when I would finish school for the year I would have to get my mother to find out who my teacher for the next year was or I would be genuinely unsettled for the summer you know um and we went to the same apartment in the same village in the same island in Spain for nine years in a row because I would be ill just at the thought of going somewhere new and I think that that's something that is fairly I think people find change difficult and it's something that is inevitable and so the essays are 11 or 12 different things that have changed for me but are also universal so like one of them is about like Love and heartbreak and like those sort of rapid changes where you go from like steam to ice without ever going through the water phase and that those changes that are really and then like slow inexorable ones like aging and how they're difficult to kind of manage and how they come up time and again on your birthday and then also there's a bit about you know I watch my Nana aging and I and I know what the end of that story is and how I'm and even though I know it's it's coming I'm still when it happens I'll be like what? What do you mean this has happened, you know? And, and, and so it's about coping with change, really, which is kind of what all my work is about, coping mechanisms and how we deal with things. And this is about coping with change. And tell me where you're writing it at the moment. Okay, so I have a very uh, disciplined writing routine because I have to have, because I've got a lot of things on. So I get up at half four in the morning and I write in my bed kind of, with a coffee until my housemates wake up and then we have breakfast together and then I'll write a little bit in a cafe but where I do the large majority of my writing at the moment is in the closest cafe to me which is the Insomnia Cafe in the upstairs of the Matter Hospital on the North Circular Road and it's quiet and it's airy and the nurses don't want to talk and make small talk and there are no other writers there who want to know what I'm doing and I have my own seat and they're, they let you sit there for a long time because they think that you're taking a break from visiting a dying loved one. And yesterday, a very kind woman who always serves me over there approached me and gave me a free copy and told me that I was so admirable because I am managing my sick relative and also my schoolwork, she called it. <laughs> um, 
And she presumed you were just doing a dissertation for some, you were doing a master's somewhere and meanwhile upstairs, you know. I had a really sick relative really that I had to visit sick. every day. So I didn't correct her. You didn't, is, you, no. d- you didn't. Because as I said before, listen. I don't know what to do when people talk to me off the cuff. <laughs> and so I just kind of went, uh, 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 yeah, thanks. Do you, do you, have you always been like that in terms of discipline when it comes to, to, to writing? Are, are you the sort of person who's always up at 4.30 in the morning? To most people, that seems extraordinary. It does seem extraordinary, yes. But what I realized was that my evenings were being spent sitting in front of the television while also on my phone, neither paying full attention to my phone nor the television. And I just thought, this is a waste of my time. So I'll take these hours off the end of my day and tack them onto the start of my day. And that way I'll be uber productive. And I am. And I'm really lucky that I actually don't enjoy socializing, you know, because I think if I were to enjoy socializing I would really miss out on that aspect because I work really hard and I have to work really hard to make all the deadlines of all the things that I have going on and I'm lucky that it's not a sacrifice for me because I love my work and I love being on my own writing with my laptop with no one talking to me and that's like my idea of bliss so I'm really lucky and it started as jet lag and then it (laughs) continued I went to Australia at the October uh, in October not 2015 and um, when I came back I was really jet lagged and I used to get up really early and I was writing Can't Go Won't Go at the time and um, it's just kind of stayed on since then because I see how much I get done in those hours and then I have my day and I'm free to like also meet my friends for lunch because I've done a lot of writing in the morning and I can come and do an interview with you in the afternoon and it's not taking up my productivity time and then I just go to bed early like so I'm asleep then by about eight or half eight. What about certainly for me the first time I knew about you was through the theatre what about that is that something that you're going to go back to or do you feel like you've now just pushed yourself into different areas as a writer or what happens there? Um, so at the moment I have a show that I have directed, which is on tour, which is touring nationally and internationally, which is really exciting. And it's called The Humours of Bandon. But I I just directed that. I didn't write it or anything or I'm performing in it. But I think that theatre is a little bit of a luxury for me right now. Like it's not something that I can afford to do because it's so time consuming. Um, but it's definitely something that I do want to do. And so I'm writing a play at the moment as kind of, like it wouldn't be the thing that I start with at half four in the morning. If I have an extra hour or if I need a break from one project, I'll go to writing this. And that's um, for the pavilion in Dunleary, I, I'm, I'm developing that. And so it's also not, it doesn't have the heavy deadlines that my television and film work does. So it's kind of at my own leisure and it's a joy in my life. You know, it's just kind of something that I love to do. And I'm really sort of, it's also a kind of a beacon of hope in the future that I will get back to performing and I will get back to write, uh, writing for theatre and being on stage. Because I am a performer first first and foremost, I still think, because that's how I started. Um, but I feel like anyone, you know, like, I, I've read a couple of different quotes on this, but like, you are what you make your money from, you know? And so I, I, I am a writer, I suppose, in that way. But... I do really love performing and I'd love for it to be something that isn't just like putting on a guard costume for my birthday and like <laughs> that sounds like I'm a stripper. Um, it's been brilliant talking to you uh, here in the Cobalt Cafe on, on North Great Georgia Street, which was a uh, top spot to do it in. Thank you to them for allowing us the space. Um, 
I'm genuinely heartbroken that I don't still have the footage of you on my radio show 16 years ago um, being all famous. But can I say it has been a thrill giving you a slightly longer uh, conversation as opposed to the first ones 16 years ago. Um, Steph Reisner, thank you for talking to me. Thank you so much. You, me and Storm Doris on North Great Georgia Street <laughs> rattling the windows. This episode was produced by Alice O'Sullivan, who is also the series producer. I'm Rick O'Shea. Thanks for downloading Originators. You'll find details about this and all the rest of the episodes in the series on the RTE 2FM website at 2FM.ie slash The Collective. The Collective. 2FM.